Hello, and welcome to the Church 860 podcast. My name is Pastor Chris, and I'm the lead pastor of Church 860 located in Westerville, Ohio. Our podcast will have daily episodes uploaded where we have curated some of the best Bible teaching from across the globe. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Turn with me, please, to Psalm 80. Psalm 80, a wonderful and particularly beautiful Messianic Psalm in many respects. Psalm 80. Oh, give ear, shepherd of Israel, thou who dost lead Joseph like a flock, thou who art enthroned above the cherubim, shine forth. <clears throat> Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up thy power and come to save us. O oh God, restore us and cause thy face to shine upon us, and we will be saved. O oh Lord God of hosts, how long will thou be angry with the prayer of thy people? Thou hast fed them with the bread of tears. Thou hast made them to drink tears in large measure. Thou hast thus make us an object of contention to our neighbors and our <clears throat> enemies laugh among themselves. O God of hosts, restore us and cause thy face to shine upon us and we will be saved. Thou didst remove a vine from Egypt. Thou didst drive out the nations and didst plant it. Thou didst clear the ground before it. And it took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shadows and the cedars of God with its boughs, but in sending out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river, meaning the Jordan. Why hast thou broken down its hedges so that who, the, all who pass that way will pick its fruit? A boar from the forest eats its way, and whatever moves in the field feeds on it. O God of hosts, Turn again now, we beseech thee. Look down from heaven and see and take care of this vine. Even the shoot which thy right hand has planted and on the sun thou hast strengthened for thyself. It is burned with fire. It is cut down. They perish a rebuke of thy, at the rebuke of thy countenance. Let thy hand be upon the man of thy right hand upon the son of man, whom thou didst make <clears throat> strong for thyself. Then we shall not turn back from thee. Revive us and we will call upon thy name. O Lord God of hosts, restore us. Cause thy face to shine upon us and we will be saved. To understand this psalm, of course, we have to look initially at its context. It is a song of, of Asaph, which has the Hebrew idea of something to come, something that shall be added. And we're told that it's set to the roses, the Shoshanim Idut, a psalm of Asaph. Remember, Jesus is the Shoshana Hasharon, the rose of Sharon. So when you see this term rose, usually it in some way points to the Messiah. The term rose points to the Messiah. Now, these roses are not roses as we think of them. They more resem would resemble lilies, multicolored, very beautiful, spoken of in the Song of, of, of Solomon, 
where we get the term, you are like the rose of Sharon, Hashanah Hasharon. Uh, Sharon being a coastal area of Israel. So uh, this is the background of it. Now, it, it's addressed both to Judah, but also to the northern tribes. So it seems to have had some kind of a prophetic meaning for the Assyrian captivity of the 10 northern tribes, because they are specified that would have been 720 BC. However, it looks forward to the Messiah, son of man. More of that in just a moment or a few moments. Now, something else we need to understand about the Psalm 80. It is in many respects, in fact, it is in a primary respect, Judeo-centric, Judeo-centric. It applies to everyone, but it has a specific meaning for Israel and the Jews. When I say something is Judeo-centric, it's focused on Israel and the Jews. It doesn't mean it doesn't apply to Christians, it doesn't apply to everyone. But it means to understand it, you have to understand what it would have meant for God's chosen people for Israel and the Jews. This is not peculiar to the Old Testament. In the New Testament, the epistle to the Hebrews, the epistle to James, and the epistles of Peter are specifically addressed to Jews. The Gospel of Matthew and John are specifically addressed to Jews. The meaning of these New Testament texts, Gospels and Epistles, apply to everyone. However, you must understand what it would have meant for Israel and the Jews to understand what it means for the church and for others, okay? So it is Judeo-centric. Now, we see that it uses the same language that Jesus used in Matthew, Matthew, but also Isaiah 5, describing Israel as a vine, describing Israel as a vine. And we see it was a vine that was transplanted from Egypt. The Jews became an anthropological identity in Egypt before the time of Moses. <clears throat> But they were transplanted out of Egypt and brought to Israel, and God displaced the Canaanites in partial fulfillment of the curse of Noah in the book of Genesis chapter 9 on Canaan. These were people who sacrificed their children to demons. These were people who ritually have every kind of perverted sex imaginable, including bestiality. Much of the Torah where God was telling Moses to tell the people, you shall not do what the nations do. That's what the Canaanites were doing. The sex with children and sacrificing children and, and, and unnatural sexual union with animals, the most perverted things you can think of is what the Canaanites were doing. Well, <clears throat> God, of course, displaced those nations and he took a vine in verse eight from Egypt. He drove out those nations, the Canaanite nations, and he planted it. And then it adopts the same theme as Isaiah 5 and of the parable of the vineyard in Matthew. It took deep root in the land and God blessed it and so on and so on and so on. However, and its shoots went to the Jordan and so on, but then God cursed it. God turned away from it and he took away its hedges. It was no longer protected so that all who pass that way may pick its fruit. The land of Israel was looted repeatedly. It was looted by 
when they sinned, the Assyrians and then the Babylonians. Then it was looted by the Seleucids, it was, who were Greeks, when they're Antiochus. It was looted by the Romans. It was looted in the Byzantine period by the Byzantines. It was looted by the Turks, the Ottomans. It was looted and is still being looted in part by Muslim Arabs. It's always been looted by somebody. The land itself gets looted. Now you have to understand what that means and the thinking of, 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 of Zionism theologically. As far as God was concerned, all of these Gentile nations who came to Israel, who colonized it, the Crusades, the Byzantines, the Ottoman Turks, whoever, they looted it. They looted it. Something that God gave to Israel was looted. Why did it happen? Well, that's what the Psalm addresses. And how can it be restored? That's what this Psalm addresses. So we have to remember the general principles applied to the church, they apply to believers, but we have to understand what it meant specifically for Israel. Oh God, do not remain quiet. Do not be silent. And oh God, do not be still in verse one. For behold, thine enemies make an uproar and those who hate thee have exalted themselves. Pagan nations with other gods, including the worshipers of the Nabataean moon god Allah. They are the enemies of Yahweh, the gods of the Greeks, of the Seleucids were the enemies of Yahweh. The gods of the Romans, who basically were adaptation of the gods of the Greeks, were enemies of Yahweh because Moses and Paul both tell us these are the gods of demons, the Manoi Shadim. So to the thinking of the psalmist, these people are not simply the enemies of the Jews. They're the enemy of the God of the Jews. They're the enemy of Yahweh. They're the enemy of Israel yet you let them conquer your land that you gave to your people for your glory and your purpose. Now that purpose, of course, was what they lost sight of. That purpose was to be or le goyim, a light to the nations, a light to the nations. As we read and we've mentioned many times in Romans chapter uh, nine, verse four, and in Jeremiah 31, 31, both the old and new covenant were made with Israel. The covenant was not made with the church. The covenants were not made with non-Jews. However, <clears throat> the covenants were made with Israel and the Jews for the benefit of the nations. They were made for the benefit of non-Jews. They were made for the benefit of the church. The church, the Gentile nations, all who put their faith in the Jewish Messiah would benefit from the covenants of the Jews. God gave it to them to be lights to the nations. Here's where it went wrong. Although there was an initial success with the early church, the predicted, the prophesied rejection of the Messiah resulted in the land being given over to these heathen nations with other gods who would loot it and they're beseeching to get it back. 
and they're still fighting to get it back, even though they're in it, they're fighting to control it. Well, let's understand this further. I was disgusted for the second time to read about an Irish author named Sally Rooney. And it's unbelievable what she says, and so many people believe it. Ireland is one of the most anti-Semitic countries in Europe because of Roman Catholicism, but not the only one. They actually say that Israel is a colonial empire, that the way that the British and the French colonized Africa and Asia and things like this, and the way the Spanish conquistadors colonized Latin America, well, that's what the Jews are. How can you colonize your own land when the archaeology proves you were there first? They tell a ridiculous lie and people subscribe to it. Remember, it is a blindness. The people who do not understand Israel are blind. And I don't just speak of left-wing politicians or the political left of Europe. I just don't speak of left-wing academics. Of course, they're blind. I even speak of people who profess to be Christians, certainly nominal Christianity, certainly liberal Protestantism, Rome, etc. Eastern Orthodoxy, they were attacking Israel the week before last. Certainly that, but even much of evangelicism, particularly among Reformed churches, as well as people who claim to be evangelicals. We know about Stephen Sizer and so forth, but I digress. When you see somebody who does not understand the vineyard was transplanted from Egypt by God and he drove out other nations and gave it to them, and it was desecrated and laid to waste and pilfered by other nations in judgment because of the rejection of the Son of Man. But their plea is to get it back. Their plea is to get it back. Now, this demonstrates the bankruptcy of Talmudic Judaism, of the rabbis. It's completely bankrupt. It's a bankrupt religion. It was the rabbis who were responsible for losing their nation to begin with. It was the Sanhedrin. It was the Pharisees and Sadducees who turned the people against their own Messiah. It was the rabbis, their greatest rabbis like Akiva, who pointed to other messiahs like Bar Kokhba, and got the people driven out of the land for 19 centuries. When Zionism began in the 19th century with Theodore Herzl and the prophecies of the Hebrew prophets and of the New Testament began to take place of the restoration of, of, of the Jews to the land and to Jerusalem particularly, God used Jewish socialists. He used Jewish socialists after Bolshevism failed in Russia, when the czars fell, the Jews wanted to make a Jewish version of socialism that would work, and they actually said it would be a light to the nations. That was their idea. That was the idea of Herzl. That was the idea of people like Ben-Gurion and the foundation of the state. They were going to be a light to the nations without the Messiah? No. Without the light of the world, they could not be light to the nations. Zionism is a failure because it is a failure theologically and spiritually. However, rabbinic Judaism is a failure. 
Why did God have to use Jewish socialists? <clears throat> the people who founded the kibbutz and moshavs and these things. Why did God have to use Jews, Jewish socialists who were basically either agnostics or atheists who only saw religion as a matter of culture, not faith or belief? <clears throat> Why did God use them instead of the rabbis if the rabbis were the spiritual guides of the Jewish people? In fact, it was the rabbis who got the Jewish people driven out to begin with. It doesn't work. Talmudic Judaism has failed Israel and failed the Jewish people because it failed the God of Israel. Well, secular Judaism the same. Secular Zionism was not a light to the nations. Israel's like any other nation. It's got the same kind of problems as any other country. The abortion rate in Israel is shocking, shocking. The modern state of Israel has murdered more Jewish children than Adolf Hitler. It's just casual form of birth control. You look at the Israel as one of the biggest gay and lesbian festivals in the world now. You look at it, 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 it it's got a drug problem. It's, it's, it's like any other country. It's sick, it's depraved, and it's morally bankrupt. It's not a light to anybody or anything because it's in darkness. But the darkest is places like B'nai Brak and Maya Sharim, where the ultra-Orthodox are. They are in the greatest darkness. And so the land is continually, continually under threat by people who want to pilfer it. Now it is Islam who wants to pilfer it. Now the restoration of Israel is of course God's purpose and it's happening, but they'll have no peace or prosperity or anything. They'll have no blessing until they accept the Messiah. That's inherent in this particular psalm. But let's continue. We looked at verse one, thou who dost lead Joseph like a flock. When you see it singles out the tribe of Joseph, we always have to understand it does so because of Messiah, son of Joseph, Hamashiach ben Yosef, the suffering servant of Genesis. He's always a picture of the Messiah rejected by his brothers, yet he saves the brothers who rejected him. Betrayed for 20 pieces of silver by Yehuda, Judas, as Jesus was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver by Yehuda, Judas. He's condemned with two criminals, one lives and one dies, as Jesus was condemned with two criminals. One would live, one would die, etc., etc. His brothers don't recognize him at the first coming, they recognize Joseph only at the second coming and weep bitterly. And so we read in Zechariah 12, they will weep bitterly when they look upon him who was pierced. They have pierced and mourned as one mourns for an only son. When you see Joseph, you are seeing something that is thematic about the suffering servant Messiah, Hamashiach ben Yosef. When it picks Joseph, it's foreshadowing the Messiah as the atonement, as the suffering servant, as the one who would be rejected by his brothers at the first coming, but accepted by him at the second. Look what happened to Israel after Joseph was rejected. It went into desolation. It went into famine. They had to come to Egypt. Well, what has happened to Israel historically after rejecting its Messiah? Now, it's a separate subject, 
But as we pointed out in some of our other teachings, one of the things that explains the millennium, one of the things that explains what the millennial reign of Christ is going to be like, is what would have happened had Israel and the Jews accepted him? What would have happened had they accepted him? That original plan that God had for Israel and the Jews, if they accepted the Messiah, is what we read about in the millennium in the book of Ezekiel particularly, also Revelation, Zechariah, and so forth, and Isaiah, but particularly Ezekiel. What would it have been like had they accepted him? Well, they will accept him, but like Joseph, at the second coming, not the first. So hence, this text is specific about Joseph. Remember, we're looking at these Psalms from the point of view of the Messiah and prophecy. Let's continue. But he's enthroned above the cherubim. You are enthroned above the cherubim, shine forth. Now in the Hebrew, when you read the Hebrew, it's a bit different. The Hebrew conveys the idea of between, between the cherubim. The two cherubim on the holy ark. Remember, Jesus always had these two cherubs in his resurrection, in his ascension. You always see he had these two cherubs with him. And they, the, the cherubim. But you have one cherub on either side of the mercy seat. And it says, the one who dwells in the middle of it. Well, this, of course, speaks of the Shekinah, the Shekinah, the Shekinah, but in John, or Keteskeno in Greek, but in John chapter one, he tabernacled, the one who was in the Shekinah tabernacled among us in the flesh. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. So this Psalm is talking about <clears throat> the deity of the Messiah, that this one, the shepherd, the, the one, the shepherd of Israel, would be the one who was present in the Holy Ark. And of course, we know the Holy Ark on earth is a reflection of the one in the heavenlies, according to Hebrews chapter 9 and Revelation, the book of Revelation as well. But let's just look at this. You are enthroned between the cherubim, and, and you shine forth, okay? The shepherd of Israel. This, of course, looks to Psalm 23. Yahweh is my shepherd. Literally, the Lord is my shepherd. We translate it. But in Hebrew, Yahweh is my shepherd. Well, if you look to John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. Who lays his life down for the sheep. This verse is Christological. It speaks of the Messiah as the shepherd of Israel, but because he dwells within the Shekinah, between the cherubim, it speaks of the deity of Christ. Then it says, before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up thy power. Again, these were tribes, but in the configuration of the tribes around the ark, the configuration of the tribes around the ark during the Exodus and so forth. These were the three tribes who were the closest to the ark 
not counting, of course, the Levites. These were the three tribes who encircled the ark, okay? Well, let's look further. Come save us. Come save us. They are calling out for salvation. They are calling out in desperation for salvation. Now, the idea of Ephraim and has a particular meaning for the northern kingdoms. And Manasseh represents the depravity of the southern kingdom of the king Manasseh. He was the worst. He was sacrificing the Jewish babies to demons. Yet, miraculously, God forgave him and he repented. Did not forgive the nation, but he forgave Manasseh. These things have to be borne in mind when we see the names of these tribes. These specific tribes are there for a reason. Save us. Save us. These people who did these terrible things are looking for salvation. Benjamin, the tribe of Saul, tried to kill David, type of Christ, obviously. Uh, Ephraim, the northern kingdom. Manasseh, oh boy. Save us. Now, of course, King Manasseh was actually from the tribe of Judah, but he has the same name. Oh God, restore us and cause thy face to shine upon us. We see that reiterated in this Psalm. Let thy face shine upon us. It says it more than once. Look with me, please, to the book of Numbers, chapter 6. Numbers, chapter 6, the ironic blessing that you are familiar with, verse 22. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and to his son, saying, Thus you shall bless the sons of Israel, and you shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and grant you peace. So they shall invoke my name on the sons of Israel, and then I will bless them. The ironic blessing, the standard Jewish blessing. They're going back to numbers. They're going back seeking the blessing of God promised through Moses and Aaron. In a time of rejection, in a time of judgment, they're looking for salvation and they're asking God to do what he said he would do in the ironic benediction in uh Verse three, cause thy face to shine upon us. We will be saved. The face of God was not shining upon them. Okay. Now this idea of the face of God shining upon them is referred to by Paul when it was reflected from the face of Moses. The face of God can be reflected from human faces. It happened with Moses it will happen, it happened with uh, Esau when he was reconciled to Jacob. Despite the heathenism and the, the demonic nature of Islam, a time will come when God will also fulfill his purposes for Abraham's other children, the Arabs, and the Jew will see the face of Christ in his estranged Arab brother. But I digress, I refer you back to our other teachings. People have this reflection but Moses didn't know he had it. Uh, you know, people don't, the, he didn't know he had it. The closer to the Lord you get, the more you see the dirt 
other people may see the light. You, you're not so impressed by yourself. The exception was Jesus. Now, this happened in the transfiguration. The apostles saw him reflecting the Shekinah in his body, along with Moses and along with Elijah. Again, in our book, Carpezzo, uh, we explain this. We shall be as he is when we meet the Lord in the air. But again, I don't want to digress. So they're pleading to the Lord to fulfill the Aaronic benediction to, to save them and to restore them and cause his face to shine upon them. In verse 4, O Lord God of hosts, how long will thou be angry with the prayer of thy people? There is something called the Shmona Esrei, the 18 benedictions in the synagogue. And the ultra-Orthodox added an additional one. May the name of the Minim, alluding to Jewish believers in Jesus, be blotted out. They pray that the names of my wife and children will be blotted out, of my grandson be blotted out, of, because they're Jewish, who believe in Jesus. This is actually in the prayer of the ultra-Orthodox. Now, the real ultra-Orthodox in the Hasidic sects, they, they do this. They actually do this. Rejecting the Messiah, they pray that the names of the Jews who accept the Messiah will be blotted out of the Book of Life. Their prayer is an abomination. Their prayer is an abomination to Yahweh, to Hashem. The prayer, they stand and they daven and all this. When you see them davening, going like this, this is a mystical occult practice. Davening is a mystical occult practice. They're trying to capture something called zoom zooms, holy sparks that they have to capture. Now get this, so God can regain his identity. They're similar to New Ages or, or, or the total Gnostics. They believe God has no essence, only attributes. He's the Ein Sof. A kenosis has happened to God himself, and they have to help him to get his identity back by capturing the holy sparks. So instead of God saving man, it becomes man saving God. This is actually the teaching of Kabbalistic Judaism. They have to keep the mitzvot and daven and capture the zumzumim, the zumzums, so God can get his identity back. Now, again, it is a perversion of a truth. That truth is the kenosis we studied when we looked at Philippians. In the person of Christ, Yeshua, God becomes a man. There is a, a divine kenosis where God lowers himself, but it's not what they think. And it's only God lowers himself to save us. Their prayer, when you see them davening and all this stuff, I mean the ultra-Orthodox now, it, it's an abomination. It's an abom They're totally blind and they're doing something abominable. They're engaging in an occult practice based on Kabbalah on, uh, that comes from Babylonian Gnosticism. It's mysticism. It is a false religion. It is just as false and demonic as our Roman Catholic friends kneeling down in front of statues of dead people and lighting candles and incense, praying to the dead, engaging in necromancy and thinking it's Christianity. It's not Christianity. It's necromancy. It's idolatry. It's superstition. It's an abomination. 
You've seen this with the Greek Orthodox and the Roman Church. Well, it's the same with the rabbis, the same with Talmudic Judaism. The same. We must understand this. Their prayer is an abomination. Their prayer, when people think Mary co-saved us, she's the co-mediatrix. No, there's one intermediary between God and man. Jesus the righteous. When they say the rosary, it's an abomination. Allahu Akbar. No, it's an abomination. But it begins with the people of God who rejected their Messiah. So what happens? You're angry with the prayer of thy people. Thou hast led them with the bread, of fed them with the bread of tears. Thou hast made them to drink tears in large measure. Look at the history of the Jews. They were persecuted and kicked out of every country where they went in Europe and beyond. Thou dost make us an object of contention to our neighbors. That goes on to this very moment. The Iranians are trying to wipe them out. The Palestinian Arabs and Gaza are trying to wipe them out. The European left want to wipe them out. Hitler tried to wipe them out. An object of contention to our neighbors? Our enemies laugh among themselves. That film, Schindler's List, was quite true. You saw the Nazis laughing at what was happening to the Jews in the concentration camp. It was a joke to them. Of course, these Nazis were demon-possessed, but it was a joke to them. Oh, God of hosts, restore us. That's what they're begging. And once again, they revert to the ironic benediction. They go back to number six. Verse seven, O God of hosts, restore us. Cause thy face to shine upon us, and we will be saved. They're putting their faith in the ironic benediction of the prayer of the high priest. But they don't know that the high priest is the Messiah, Yeshua, of which Aaron was a shadow. God cannot make his face to shine upon them unless they come under the high priest. You had to come under the prayer of the high priest in order for God to make his face to shine upon you. Unless you were under the prayer of the high priest, his face would not shine upon you. Unless we are under the prayer of our high priest, as Yeshua is described in Hebrews, unless we are under the prayer of our high priest, God's face cannot and will not shine upon us. What was the prayer of our high priest? Father, forgive them. That's the prayer of our high priest. Unless we are under the prayer of the high priest, God's face does not shine favorably on anyone, Jew or non-Jew. But let's continue. Verse 8, as we read, thou didst remove a vine from Egypt, that was Israel, anthropologically, the ethnic nation. Thou didst drive out the nations, the Canaanites, and plant it. Thou didst clear the land before it, and it took deep root and filled the land, and the mountains were covered with its shadow, the cedars of God with his boughs. It was spreading out its branches from the Mediterranean to the Jordan, it shoots. Why hast thou broken down its hedges? That is its wall of protection. In Hebrew, I would translate it more a wall of protection. Why have you broken down it? 
so that all who passed away pick its fruit. The land of Israel was continually looted. Then we get to verse 13. This is remarkable. A boar, a wild pig from the forest eats, its, eats it away. And whoever moves in the field feeds on it. A wild boar, a wild pig. Pigs were, of course, an unkosher animal. Antiochus Epiphanes, type of the Antichrist, defiled the temple by slaughtering a pig on the altar. A wild boar, a wild pig, a vish, but a wild one, uh, devours the land. Remember Jesus said, cast not your pearls before swine? Those unkosher animals or figures are different kinds of people. Now, we deal with this, of course, on our teaching, kashrut and famine, kashrut and famine, the typology of the Hebrew dietary laws. But swine, the reason swine were not kosher is Jesus said, cast not your pearl before them. They will gobble up everything and they will trample on the gospel. They will not care about it. <coughs> well, these nations who will devour the land are, are wild pigs. But big, vicious ones, like the Polynesians hunt with swords. They're big, they're deadly, they kill. <clears throat> now, if you can believe it, yes, Martin Luther ended badly, but he began right. The 95 Thesis were 100% right. He heard the Dominican indulgence merchant, Tetzel, raising money to build the Vatican at the end of the Renaissance. And Tetzel's sermon that Luther heard was, you can sexually violate Mary, the mother of Jesus, if you have the right price. Luther was already questioning. He was influenced by Erasmus of Rotterdam. He was influenced by Staupitz. He was influenced by other people. He was already questioning. By the time of Luther, when he nailed the 95 Thesis to the door, there had been people well before Luther who knew the gospel and told the truth. In England, it was John Wycliffe and his followers, the Lollards, brutally persecuted. In Central Europe, it was the Bohemian brethren, Jan Hus. They murdered him too. And when Luther had his debate with John Eck and so forth, they accused Luther of believing what Huss believed a hundred years earlier. And Luther said, yeah, Huss was right. Don't get this idea that Luther invented or rediscovered the gospel. There were always people who knew it. Very persecuted, but they were around. God has always had a people for his own name. Now, Luther sees this corruption and the sale of indulgences. And there were other people who saw this corruption before Luther. There was another Dominican in Italy during the Renaissance who realized the truth and the corruption, but they murdered him too. His name was Savaranola, Savaranola. Savaranola saw what was happening. John Huss saw what was happening. There were people before Luther who saw it and knew it. But the political circumstances and the economic and social circumstances of Europe changed with the end of feudalism. 
and the nation state was born and Luther was able to get away with things other people weren't. And basically Erasmus had already laid the egg, Luther now hatches it. Nails the 95 Thesis to the door of the Cathedral of Wittenberg and all hell breaks loose. The Pope responds. The Catholic Church hierarchy, the papacy responded, but did not deal with the 95 Thesis. They did not question or debate anything Luther said. They couldn't refute it. It was all true. And everybody knew it was true. They couldn't really deny it. They just ignored it. They do what left-wing politicians do today. They just ignore it and try to change the issue. Well, what was the response? The response was something called a papal bull. A papal bull. Well named. It was a lot of bull, but I'm not going to say the rest of it. That's what it was, the papal bull that couldn't have a more fitting name. At least it had the first half of the name right. The papal bull. And the papal bull, if you can believe it, was derived from the Latin text of the Vulgate of this psalm. <laughs> and they took it from this verse. And they talked about, oh my word, this is this, this is how they responded to the 95 Thesis and to Luther and to the dawn of the Reformation when the Reformation began. They said, a boar from the forest in verse 13 eats away. And they said it in the papal bowl, the Pope wrote, oh God, a wild boar has devoured thy vineyard. <laughs> they took this passage and applied it to Luther. <laughs> Unbelievable. They took it from the Latin Vulgate and they applied it to Luther. That was the response to the 95 Thesis from this psalm. Verse 14. O God of hosts, turn again. Now we have to understand the Hebrew word turn. Teshuvah. The Hebrew word for turn and return is the same as the word for repent. Repent. They're asking God to turn back. But God only turns back when the people turn back. Oh, God of hosts, turn back to us. Now we beseech you. Look down from heaven and see and take care of this vine. Oh, please return to Israel. Please show us grace. Now, of course, that's going to happen in the book of Zechariah, chapter 12, verse 10. They'll look upon them, him who they have pierced. We know that this is going to happen. Jesus will do it but only when they mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. Let's look carefully. Please turn back to us, the vine. Verse 15. Even the shoot which thy right hand has planted. Whenever you see the right hand of Yahweh, it is a figure, a metaphor for the Messiah. He brings salvation by his right hand. In another psalm, If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, I will forget my right hand. If God can forget his prophetic promises, 
to Jerusalem that he made to the patriarchs and to David, then he can forget his own son. <laughs> if I forget the old Jerusalem, may I forget my right hand. The King James completely, completely mistranslates this. And it interpolates in italics, may my right hand forget its cunning. It's not in the original text. It's not what the original Hebrew says. It's not what the original Hebrew means. If I forget the old Jerusalem, may I forget my right hand. If God can forget his promises to Jerusalem, he can forget his promises to his own son. But he can't do that. King James gets it completely wrong. Now, sometimes King James gets things quite right. But this is a case where it gets something quite wrong. Let's look. Thy right hand is planted, and on the Son, whom thou have strengthened for thyself. Not S-U-N, S-O-N. The right hand of Yahweh is his Son. He refers to the land, alludes to the capital, but says, it is burned with fire, it is cut down. The trees were gone. The natural habitat of Arabs was desert. The Turks put a tax on trees. One of the main things that happened when Israel was reborn as a nation was national reforestation. Just this past week, they had their Arbor Day. Now in Israel, Arbor Day is a big national holiday. It's called Tu Bishvat, Tu Bishvat. And it's a national holiday because the reforestation represents the rebirth of the nation. It was devastated, it was deforested. The deforestation and desertification of Israel was a sign of God's judgment or was God's judgment. The reforestation is indicative or emblematic of the national rebirth. They make a big deal out of their uh, Arbor Day, which is two Bishvat, was just last week. That is one of the reasons you've had Muslim terrorists setting forest fires. Let's look at verse 17. They perish at the rebuke of thy countenance. Let thy hand be upon the man of thy right hand, upon the son of man, whom thou didst make strong for thyself. Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon the son of man. They're pleading for the Messiah. They're pleading for the Messiah who they rejected. He's the only way God's going to forgive, the only way God's going to renew, the only way God is going to restore is by his right hand, by his Messiah, by his own son. That is the only way his face will ever shine upon them. What a verse. Let thy hand be upon the man of thy right hand, upon the son of man. Daniel saw one like the Son of Man walking in the furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The only other person specifically called the Son of Man other than Jesus is Ezekiel. Jesus is called the Son of Man. That's his title. But Ezekiel is referred to him because Ezekiel is a type of Christ in his second coming. But we have other teachings addressing this. Let's understand, you know, most of you, that whenever it speaks of his second coming, of his return, it's never as the Son of God. 
that's him in eternity. Whenever it speaks of him coming to earth, he comes in human form. He's physically present. He's the son of man. Whenever the scripture talks of his, when the son of man comes, he's always coming physically. They're not looking for some <clears throat> purely spiritual redeemer. They're looking for a spiritual redeemer who's incarnated. Then, then, when this Messiah does this, when you do this through this son of your right hand, the son of man, then, in verse 18, we shall not turn back from thee. We won't backslide anymore. Revive us, and we'll call upon your name. And then, once again, it reverts to the ironic blessing. O Lord God of hosts, restore us. Cause thy face to shine upon us, and we will be saved. May he make his face to shine. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Church 860 podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed it. If you have, we ask that you would like and subscribe to the podcast so that you can get daily updates. If you'd like to know more about Church 860, please visit church860.com. Thank you. God bless.